You know, I just want to encourage you this morning before we invite up our incredible preacher. I just... (laughs) Hey, it could be anybody. It could be you. Liz has got her hand up down the back. I see that hand. I just want to encourage you, as I said earlier, to turn your hearts to God this morning. You know, God wants us to listen. To listen. But sometimes that isn't just listening with our physical ears. It's actually listening in our heart. And there's something of God here for everybody this morning. So why don't we give Pastor Chris an incredible round of applause this morning as he comes to bring the word. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, clap, clap while you can. Who would be excited this morning if I handed out medium-sized rocks and asked you all to put them on your seats and sit on them? I don't actually have any. I wish I'd brought some for a demonstration. But who, who would think that that would be a very uncomfortable experience? The interesting thing is that that's exactly, in terms of our heart and our minds, my purpose here today, is to actually, not to stick a rocket under you, (laughs) that would work as well, but if you're not feeling uncomfortable by the time I've finished, or even possibly by the time I've started, then I haven't done my job, because I'm not here to tickle your ears. I'm not here to present you with theologically good ideas that you can say, ooh, he's done his Bible study. What a clever boy. The idea is that if we're going to change something in in our lives, we have to change our minds and our hearts and our spirit. And I don't know about you, but I've never found change happens smoothly. We talk about transition. And, you know, I know some people who are transitioning jobs at the moment. And we all sort of like to think well, that that happens smoothly. But guess what? There's always going to be tension, upheaval, and change. And it's often, in fact, no, I'll go as far as to say always painful. Sometimes the pain, I mean, depending on the, the, the size of the bit of rock that you got handed, it might be a tiny little bit of gravel and you sit there thinking, oh, yeah, I can feel that. But it's not too bad. You may get a slightly bigger bit that's got a pointy end on it that's sticking gluteus maximus. Just to use a Roman term there. I had a good friend, gluteus maximus. No, okay, let's not go there. Or you might have something the size of my fist, which is like you're only sitting on one buttock. And the other one is cramping already. You're thinking, will you get this over with? Because this is really painful. We need to not only recognise that pain is part of change, but we've actually got to do something about it. It's no good just sitting on it and saying, well, that was painful. Don't want to do that again. What are you going to do to change? Because there's an old saying that says, everything will remain the same unless the pain of remaining the same exceeds the pain of change. No. Yeah. The pain of change has to be less than the pain of remaining the same. So I'm going to make you feel in pain until you change. I've made myself really popular here, I can see. We're talking about the Ten Commandments. You see, this is is why it's important to change, because I don't know about you, but looking at the Ten Commandments from a surface point of view, they look like ten old laws that could be pretty important we could be bothered following them and uh, as Christians we probably are so we don't need to think too much about it but as I've delved into this I've discovered that there are depths in the Ten Commandments that if we actually take them seriously are going to cause some serious pain in our lives standing up for something is always going to put somebody offside and if we stand for what we believe in guess what? you're not going to be popular. 
join me in being unpopular. So we're talking about the Tenth Commandment today. And I'm easing you into this. Because if you look at the Tenth Commandment, it's that you shan't covet. Who knows what coveting is? A few people. But for the sake of you who don't, we, we don't use that word a lot today. But it's interesting that the problem it addresses is so common that we even have sayings for it. Who's ever heard, the grass is always greener on the other side? That's only true if you're coveting something on the other side. How about God made us a little lower than the angels, but most of us just want to climb a little higher than the Joneses. Or our yearnings will always exceed our earnings. Who's ever heard that one? Even if you haven't heard it, who knows it to be true? Yes. So, whether it's clothes, houses, salaries, talents, lifestyles, or cars, we want what other people have. Each of us has our unique desires, different tastes, but we all want what we haven't got. Not all desire is wrong. We have to make this very clear, because I know that even in my introduction last week, people started getting nervous about this whole thing. What if I want stuff? Is it wrong to actually want things? How, how, how high should I aim? What, what, what are God's dreams and desires for my life? And, and are they His or have I subverted them? And should I be just living in sackcloth and ashes in poverty? Um, all of these things come up. But not all desire is wrong. Some of our deepest desires are actually for good things. Who's had a desire for good things? Who hasn't? Come on. Pleasure and joy, belonging, security, comfort, safety, excitement, adventure, they can all be good desires. We want to be well respected. We want to be loved. We want a life of meaning. Isn't that true? These are all good things. In fact, if you think about it, a lot of the good things that have benefited this earth, a lot of the great explorers, a lot of the great inventors, all of those people were driven by a desire for something they didn't have. Strangely, now we have the things that they didn't have. You might wonder whether that's a good thing or not. But. And it's interesting that often their desires were not noble in intent. They desired money, security, sometimes glory, but they did good things with it. And so we have good desires. Are you happy to have good desires? Who knows that all your desires, though, aren't good? You have bad desires. I know you people. You think bad things sometimes, especially when I'm preaching. I feel it. When we see a neighbor or a colleague or a friend with something better than what we've got, we want it. We want the same as they have. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, we would like the same but slightly better. There was a famous financier who was asked, how much money is enough money to make man satisfied? His answer was, just a little bit more. Because that's what we like. So, desire, nobody's ever been jailed for a desire. Just because you want something, the thought police don't come along and say, ah, oh, no, no, you want the wrong thing. That's 30 days. County lockup in America. You don't have counties here. We agree for it, for instance, that some of the other commandments are far more obvious. We don't want people to murder. That's right. And isn't it? Oh, good. In the wrong, right place. And we agree that there should be a punishment for murder. People should be prosecuted for stealing. People should be prosecuted for stealing. <laughs> Gee whiz. Sometimes these things aren't just the Ten Commandments. We have laws in Australia as well that, uh, contrary to some people's opinions, we should actually follow. In fact, the, the law of God says, follow the law of your nation. So, but it's not against the law to covet things. In fact, a lot of people would be out of work if it was. We have a huge industry called marketing or advertising, which is built around encouraging people to desire what they don't have. In Australia last year, 
the advertising industry was worth $14.7 billion. Who wouldn't mind a bit of that? You're coveting already, you see. Let's just quickly look. Five things covetousness has precipitated in the world. First thing is, it might be impossible to prosecute, but its effects are actually everywhere. If you think about it, throughout history, rulers and na nations have caused invasion, poverty and war because they coveted the land, resources and wealth that belonged to other people. You don't usually start wars because you wake up one morning and think, I believe God wants me to start a war. Some people have. You can lock them away in dark cells somewhere before they can do any more damage. But it's usually because you want something. I don't, you either don't like them. I don't like them because they have more oil than we do. Therefore, I feel justified in attacking them just for the security of the country and the fact that I don't like them. Well, we don't. But leaders and rulers have done that for centuries. The second thing is the global environment crisis. You thought that was due to population increase, didn't you? Which is true. Do you know that in the last 12 years the world's population has increased by a thousand million? But the trouble is that those thousand million people all want more. The population increase in itself is not actually the problem. The problem is that as our population increases and our degree of industrialization increases, people want more. The country of China is building one coal-powered fuel coal-powered power station every week. And if you go and tell them, hang on, we've discovered that coal power is dirty and it's polluting the atmosphere, they'll say, yes, but you're coming from a perspective where you're a rich country with all these wealth and resources and you're trying to keep us down by pretending that we're doing the bad thing by having coal-fired power stations. What did you do when you were a developing nation? Oh, well, uh, we had coal-fired power stations. Yeah, so shut up. And that's what they do, because they don't, they don't actually care that they are endangering future generations, not just of our children and their children, but the whole world. Because they want more. The third thing, covetousness breeds exploitation and unrest. Who's got a job here and earns a wage? Let's... Let, let's so not, not a business, This is you have an employer who pays you. You get a cheque every week or fortnight or month. Who, and I won't ask, but a lot of people would belong to unions. And unions are good things because they represent the workers. But what happens is that, for instance, I know that Anne works in the, um, what industry do you call it? Health industry. And I don't know what particular branch of the health industry you would call it, but I know that there's probably a union that says these workers are really good and they deserve a pay rise. And knowing Anne, I believe them. But the trouble is when Anne gets a pay rise, what happens is there's another branch of health workers, let's call them doctors, who are grossly underpaid and are suffering. And they look and they say, look at these health workers, they're being paid a mint. We want to be paid the same as them, but perhaps a little bit more. And so their union goes into bat, and the health system says, oh, okay, yep, we can pay you. And then these people say, hey, they're only doctors. We are worth more than they are. We need a pay rise. And there's this cycle of people trying to keep up with each other because they want more. It's interesting, though, that if you listen to all the debates about it on television, they don't use greed and covetousness ever. They use words like parity, equality, harmonisation, justice for all. They make it sound it's covetousness and greed. The fourth thing, the London Olympics. Well, that's actually just one example. But it was a, a project that had a very tight schedule. The Games in 2012 were scheduled for a particular day, the opening ceremony. If they'd missed that day, the TV stations would have been very upset. And so you've got people who are training to be athletes at the Games. 
who watched any of the Summer Olympics 2012 was quite good. What you didn't know is that a lots of people working behind the scenes to build the stadiums and the facilities to host the games. And these people realised that, hey, suddenly they were valuable. Because without them, the games were not going to be finished in time. And so they went and they negotiated with people saying, this is a really important job and we feel that we need to be paid more to do it because we're important. They didn't say, if you don't pay us more, you're stuffed, which is what they really, because that's blackmail, that's illegal. But they say, we really feel that to get it on time, we need to be paid more money. And the cost blowout for the Olympics was incredible because people saw an opportunity and exploited it because they were covetous. They just wanted more. They were doing the same job they'd done building the pub down the road, which they'd done dirt cheap because they needed to get to drink there afterwards. But no, this is an Olympic village. This is the whole world is coming to see and these people have got money coming out of their ears so suddenly I am worth more. I want more to do something there. The fifth thing is something that there's been a lot in the news about lately is this whole idea that CEOs of companies are worth a lot of money. In America, the average company CEO earns $11 million a year with stock options and various other bits and pieces. The average worker earns 231 times less than that. So they're in charge of a company, they're earning 231 times more than the average worker. Now that last point is significant because of what you're thinking right now. You are thinking that is unjust. The disparity between their wage and the worker's wage is way too much. But underneath, you're all thinking, wouldn't it be good to get a bit of that? Some people are being paid that. Wouldn't it be nice? What you could do with 11 million just for one year. I'd be a CEO just for one year. Wouldn't you? You see, we're outraged on one hand, but we want it with the other. In righteous indignation opens the door, but covetousness sneaks in pretty quickly afterwards. Some of you might not have thought that, and if you didn't, I apologise for thinking badly of you. But the rest of us did, because it's human nature to think, well, they don't deserve what they're getting. If they did and I could get it, I, I would like it. Because that's, we're all prone to covetousness. So, subtle, dangerous, how do we recognise it? How do we stop it creeping up on us and clubbing us on the back of the head? How do we separate our good desires and our bad desires? I don't know. Actually, I do. I want to actually look at a biblical example here. Who always knows it's always good to look in the Bible? It's a good book. So I've been told. I've read it. So I want to look at one person who actually acted on his desires on two separate occasions. And so in these occasions, desire was a prominent part of both circumstances, but covetousness only figures in one. I want you to tell me which it is and what the difference in the two is. And the person in question, of course, is King David. And we'll start in 1 Samuel 17. And the first time that he acts on his desires, he's only a lad. And he's been sent by his father to get food to his brothers on the battlefield because the Israelites are fighting the Philistines, which is the correct pronunciation, not like the Americans say Philistines. There's a Stein in there. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. And then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. Obviously he taunted them more than the second time. Too old. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. You'd have thought they got used to it by this time. But they're still running away. Have you seen the giant, the men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife 
and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes for the rest of their lives. Any volunteers? David can't believe his ears. So he asks a soldier standing nearby, he says, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway? That he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God. You can see that wheels are turning. He's suddenly seen a dream. Marriage and tax-free existence. You know what they say, you should never talk about sort of politics and, and sex in polite conversation. Here he's just been offered both things on a plate. And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, this is the reward for killing him. But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway? He demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. So he's had a desire, and already somebody's been putting it down. We might think, well, is his brother right? Is he coveting things he shouldn't have? He goes on. He says, what have I done? I was only asking a question. Injured innocence. Who's under 25 here? Yeah. It's the sort of thing that generation says a lot. What? Well, it wasn't me. I was just asking. Just asking. He walked over some other, to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. He's checking up on his sources here. He's not going to take this sort of just on the word of one person. Then David's question was reported to King Saul and the king sent for him. And we know what, what happened after that. He gave David his armour. Armour said, look, David said, forget it, that's way too heavy for me. He gets his sling and his stones and he goes out there and he knocks Goliath out, Goliath out chops his head off and wins the war. And guess what? Gets the prize. He did. Why did he do that? Because he was a, had a noble desire to rescue Israel from the Philistines? Possibly. That's not what triggered it. He was offered the king's daughter's hand in marriage and a tax-free existence. He desired something. It happened to him again. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, same man, King David. Situation slightly differently because he is now King David. He has a palace. He has an army. He has a good life. And we can tell he has a good life because late one afternoon after his midday rest, who here gets a midday rest? David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. What are you, what's wrong with the rest of the palace? What do you go walking on the roof? Because you get a good view. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. I've got up on my roof on the odd occasion to clean the gutters, and I swear that I've never seen anybody bathing on their roof certainly no women of unusual beauty he sent someone to find out who she was now I don't know it's a big palace I've often wondered he either had really good eyesight or he had a telescope up there I wonder about this guy sometimes he was told she is Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite then David sent messages to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. she just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Too much information. But hey, it reminds me of Robin Hood men in tights. It's good to be the king. Later, and of course this is where the later comes in, when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Forthright, this woman. And then David sent word to Joab, who was one of his generals, and said, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. 
when Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing, bided with wine and drink. And he said, go home and relax. Can you see the plan here? He's thinking, if I get Uriah back, he goes home, has a night with Bathsheba. The baby's obviously going to be thought to be Uriah's. And nobody need know. So David even sent a gift to Uriah after he left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. And when David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Uh-oh. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed from that day and the next. And David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. And he slept at the palace entrance with the king's guard. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. We can see in both of these incidents, David acted on a desire. One of them ended really well. The other one ended disgustingly. So what's the difference? He acted on a desire both times. He wanted something that he didn't have. What's the difference? Besides the obvious. I mean, the second one, not only did he break the Tenth Commandment, but six, seven, and eight as well. I mean, that, that, that's a given. But the answer is actually motivation. It's not what you want. It's why you want it. And what you're prepared to do to get it. Let's look at the first event. The first event was motivated by a desire for the reward. Correct? But. But God. No, that's a book. Good read. There was a benefit for other people as well. Not only did David get a reward from it, but he freed Israel from the tyranny of the Philistines. The second thing is that it required personal sacrifice. He was confident, but he could have been killed. He had to rely on things that he had learned as a shepherd boy, remember that the, the lie he talks about the fact that he killed a bear and the lion defending the sheep, and therefore he was prepared for this. But there was a sacrifice involved, not only the, in that he'd trained for such a thing, but he was putting his life on the line. The third thing, it required courage. Notice it didn't say he stood on the bank and waited for Goliath to advance and then ran away a bit threw a couple of rocks and ran away a bit. He's, it says he ran towards the Philistine, swinging his sling. It took courage to do what he did. Number four, he approached the task with integrity. He didn't lie about his capabilities. He didn't deceive anybody into thinking he was more than he was. The king offered him armour. He could have said, yeah, well, I'm a soldier now. I should wear the armour. He said, no, I'm a shepherd boy. I use a sling. I can't use the armour. It's not me. He refused to be swayed by other people's opinions about what he should do because he knew who he was and he acted out of who he was. The fifth thing. He involved people in authority over his life in his actions. 
His questions attracted the notice of King Saul. King Saul spoke to him and he could have said, I forbid you to go and attack the Philistine. And David would have said, okay, my king, if that's your order. But he questioned David, saw his motives and said, okay, if you think you can do this, then you go and do it. So David didn't go off on his own. He wasn't a loose cannon or a loose slingshot. He actually involved people of authority over his life and his decision-making. And the sixth and the most important thing, God was with him. He was actually acting on God's behalf. Who is this pagan Philistine who stands against the armies of the living God? His faith was not just in his abilities, but his faith was in the fact that God had given him those abilities and that he served a mighty God. The second event was also motivated by a desire for the reward. But the benefit was his alone. Nobody else benefited from his actions. In fact, innocent people died. The second require any personal sacrifice it required the sacrifice of an innocent and very loyal man it required sacrifice alright but it wasn't his it was somebody else's the third thing it was cowardly it required no courage to take what was not his he sent servants out into the city brought her to him and slept with her doesn't say he asked her permission either. It was a cowardly, underhanded act. It left even a shred of integrity. David is now the king. He is ruling a nation. He is the, the person that everybody looks to as an example of how to behave. He let the whole nation down because he showed them how not to behave without any integrity whatsoever. The fifth thing, he hid it from everybody else. Not only didn't he bring people in under whose authority he was under in to say, do you think this is a good idea? Why didn't he do that? Because he knew what the answer was. But he hid it. He hid it from... Uriah, he hid it from the prophet, he hid it from every, I mean he did everything he could to make sure nobody knew what was going on. He tried to get Uriah to come home and get his wife with child so that he could pass off the blame, so he's there sort of handballing responsibility. And then he got Joab, without telling him why, to put him on the front line getting killed. And this, and the horrible thing about that was that Joab, uh, that Uriah had actually shown himself to be a man of the highest integrity. He was so caught up in his nation's future that he had been dragged home from the front and he was so still caught up with the fact that there were men out there fighting and dying, sleeping in the open, eating bad food and, and suffering terrible hardship. And he was back in the city talking to David, which is what his duty was. But he wasn't going to take it easy and have a good time because his heart was still with those people out there. This was a guy of the highest integrity. Yet David had him killed just to satisfy his lust. And the sixth thing was he ignored God. Not only is that a silly thing to do, just as a word of warning, but it had incredibly catastrophic consequences. Because... You can ignore God, but you see, you can't forget about God, because God knows what's going on. Have you noticed that? You can pretend God isn't watching, but God isn't pretending anything. God is watching. And if you read on, you can see the consequences of what David's desire and covetousness did. So which one, so I think I've given it away there, but which one do you think involved covetousness? first one, all those in favour 
No. Second one? Yes. So, how do we avoid the trap? Because this is the same person. This is the king of Israel. This is the man that God describes as a man after my own heart. A man whom I love. And yet, if you look at it, he operated out of his desires. Sometimes that was a good thing. Sometimes it was a bad thing. So how do we avoid? So it's not about who you are. It's not, so it's not Mike isn't destined for the rest of his life to make really, really good decisions based on his desires. Sometimes he's going to stuff up. And Jess isn't destined to make really bad ones all the time. In fact, after this message, hardly any of the time. So what do we do? If we want something, just, just as about who wants something? Good. I think we're all in the same ballpark here. Ask yourself these questions. Am I being selfish? Now when I say selfish, it's not a question of do I really want this? Because that's a given. It's not a question of, of not desiring. It's like, I need it. No, no, be real, you want it. We fool ourselves. I mean, children learn that to blackmail their parents when they're about two. They realise that going down supermarket shelves and when they say, lollies, I want that. Mum says, no, 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 you don't need that. I want that. No, no, you don't need that. And suddenly they twig. Mum isn't saying they don't want it, they don't need it. So they change their tune. They say, Mummy, I need those lollies. And of course, what's happened is mum set herself up for a fall. Because, I don't know about you, but most mothers, then the needs of their children are their prime concern. And so their child has just learned to blackmail their mother by saying, I need those lollies, I need it. Mummy, Mummy, I need it, I need it, I need it. And mummy gives in. If the child had said, I want it, I want it, I want it, mother would say, be quiet. They, no, that was, they wouldn't have done that. Uh, but when we change our language, we justify ourselves. So admit to yourself, you want it. It's okay to want things. You don't have to disguise it as a need. But if you want it, say, okay, is it only me that's going to benefit or is it going to be- benefit other people as well? You might think, well, how's how's a torch going to benefit somebody else? I just need it so that I can go to the loo in the middle of the night without tripping over stuff. Well, it might help your wife because she wakes up when you bang into furniture. Um, but it, it, even if it's something for your own personal, the, other, the second part of that question is, is it going to harm anybody else? So if it's going to it's okay to want it, but you've got to look. What are the consequences for the people around me? So yeah, that was point two. Is anyone else going to suffer if you go ahead with this desire? You're going to cause suffering. Now, you can get really picky with that. And I guess that depends on your revelation. Buying some pairs of jeans can cause suffering. Because there are people in foreign countries being paid two cents to make those things and going home being sort of starving because the companies that sell them don't care about them and, and in buying those particular brands you're actually causing hardship. Now, just saying. We won't take that any further. Third thing, is it a sacrifice for me or for someone else? Is it going to use my resources? Am I actually going to have to use my skills? Is it is it something that I'm going to have to sacrifice my money for? Or is it somebody else's money? Are you going to get a credit card to make this purchase? Might be a good uh, question to ask yourself. Because that's somebody else's money. Somebody else is making a sacrifice initially. In the end, you're going to be making the sacrifice. Is it underhanded? In other words, is this... Did this thing that you want fall off the back of the truck? Is it one of these once-only deals that if you don't apply day 9am, the deal's gone completely and you miss out, uh, so pay up now or else? Is it something that you wouldn't tell other people that you were doing? 
Is it something that you would lie to other people about? Yeah, I'm just getting just getting a cheap computer. Six and a half thousand dollars. Um, because I, I need it because uh, I do important stuff with Word and Outlook. I need the fastest top of the line computer I've got because I hate it when Outlook runs slow. Is it under? Are you lying to yourself? Good question to ask. Number five, you're getting to the getting to the stage where you need to be sitting on a bit of a rock. Yeah, you need to be poking into your backside. You need to be getting uncomfortable. Would you accept the advice of a mentor about this desire? Now, I'm assuming here that you have one. Point five B: If you don't have one, get one. Somebody that you trust to give you advice, which is sound, relevant, positive. Could you go to somebody and say, look, Mike, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think? Because that's easy enough. I can do that. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I don't. Tough. I don't care what you say. Off it. Phil Pringle went through a stage once where he got a lot of people asking him for advice. And he made it a rule that if you wanted to ask his advice, you had to pay him $1,000. Because his advice is worth something. If you followed his advice, he gave you the $1,000. If you didn't, he kept it. Because what's the point of giving advice if nobody listens? If you're not willing to actually listen to the advice of a mentor or somebody you look up to or somebody who has your best interest at heart, then don't even bother to ask. It's rude and insulting. How many of your desires could you pa pass by a mentor and actually be humble enough to accept their assessment of the situation? Because I, most, of the, most of what you want would go from I want it now to I might have to wait six months. I might have to save money before I do it. <laughs> um, Brendan's been giving very bad advice, so I need to speak to him as a mentor afterwards. His advice was to do it first and then ask your mentor. Because <laughs> you can follow their advice, but it's too late. And the last thing, have you asked God? Is this something that you could stand before God and say, yep, I feel that this is something that God is at least neutral about. It might not be something that you get this thundering applause from heaven, yay, go for it! But it's like, okay, am I breaking any commandments? Am I being selfish? Lord, is this going to glorify you? And sometimes even if you can't think of a way that it will, ask the opposite question, is this going to bring your name into disrepute? not and perhaps go ahead so just to re recap those am I being selfish is someone else going to suffer is it a sacrifice for me or someone else is it underhanded does it compromise my integrity I think I might have missed that one did I miss that one out because that's the other thing if it compromises your integrity if it's not who you are if you have to be pretend, you have to pretend to be to achieve what your desire, then you've lost your integrity. Now, if you have to become somebody else to achieve it, that can be different. As long as it's integral to who you are, you can grow and be someone different to achieve something. It's a bit like applying for a, a new job. Often the job you apply for is something that you know you can do but you've never done before. And you think you've got the qualifications, you think you've got the capabilities, you're prepared to put your life on the line to achieve it. But when you start that new, who, who knows, when you start a new job, it's, all, it's totally different. Often everything you know, I still remember my first job, I'd done four years of university. And I'd done lab work and I knew exactly what I was doing and I went to work at a university research lab and I learnt more in the first month there than I'd learnt in the previous four years. In 
fact, everything I'd learnt in four years was basically useless, apart from the fact that I knew how to learn about it. It was the only thing that kept me going. And that made me a different person. Did it affect my integrity? No. It was actually something that I was prepared for and needed to do. So it's not a question of not doing what you used to, but you've got to, you've got to be you. You can kill a bear and a lion, but you've got to really step out there to kill Goliath. You've got to do it as who you are. I've gone a bit long this morning. I'm going to stop it right there because next week, because it's a bit of a downer this morning, really, isn't it? Yeah, you, you're a bit of salt, a bit of sitting on a, a sharp rock, and I've made you feel a bit of a pain in the luteus. But I think it's important. Next week could be quite different because next week, uh, next week we've got uh, Brendan. He's going to uh, speak to you, perhaps, on the more positive sides of covetousness. Because if anybody can find it, Brendan can. So, stand as I close. Because I, I want us to make a decision this morning based on wanting something that isn't covetous. See, the perfect desire is to actually give your life to Christ. See, it's a deed that meets that first set of criteria I gave you perfectly. It requires courage and personal sacrifice. It benefits others. So there are people out there who don't know God whose lives you can influence. It's an absolutely pointless exercise if you lie about it. So integrity is a central key. You can't just say you're giving your life to Christ. You have to be doing it. God knows when you lie. It also involves putting God and some of God's people in a position of authority over your life, which can be a bit humbling, frightening. But the rewards are out of this world. So before I finish this morning, can I get everybody just to close their eyes, bow their heads? And I just want to ask, based on those criteria, is there anyone here who would like to put their life in God's hands for the first time? Well, nobody's looking around. If you lift your hand, I'll see it. I'll recognize it. We can pray a prayer that will bring God into your life. I see that hand. front, I want us to practice what I've preached. We need to make sure that we're prepared to actually do what God has asked us to do. Can I get that person to come out in front? Just here, bring, bring a friend. This is part of the personal sacrifice. And I want us all to pray this prayer after me. Because this, this is David. You might not have seen him kill a bear or a lion. You see, I know this man has the heart of a lion potential in this slim frame is amazing so let's pray Lord God I give my life into your hands from this moment on I just from here on in the things of the world and the things that are not you I accept my Lord Jesus Christ as Lord 
and Saviour. I am born again in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, courage isn't the absence of fear. It's doing things while you're afraid. The Ten Commandments, I believe this year, are going to stretch the courage of people here. We come from a background in this country of the Ten Commandments being a commonly accepted way of life. The constitution of our country is based on the Ten Commandments. But we are rapidly entering, in fact we have entered a phase in the life of our nation, in the life of our culture, where those Ten Commandments are actually being fought against by the nation as a whole. I mean our culture we just take the, the commandment I've, just, I've talked about today. It takes covetousness as part of life. Advertising is part of our lives. Wanting things is part of our lives. It's natural. How are we as Christians going to fight? It's an uphill battle. People are going to look at us and say, you're out of, you're out of tune, you're out of time. And yet we have to stand firm in the belief that it doesn't matter how many people believe a sin is right. The sin is still a sin. You can make it culturally acceptable. You can make it so that it doesn't have any visible consequences. But unless we make a stand, we might as well call our church self the church of good times instead of just the church of Jesus Christ. Is it going to make some of us unpopular? Yes. Is it going to mean that we're going to have to be certain about what we believe and not be swayed by the world? Yes. Is it going to be hard? Probably. Do I care? Yes. But am I going to move? Not on your life. But be prepared. It's going to be a struggle because we're going to have to change our mindset got to make sure our heart is right because that's the only way we get to see an open heaven I can't wait for next week's message I believe it's going to be exciting uplifting outrageously funny no pressure hey have an absolutely awesome week don't forget to hang around for some coffee and Vicky's going to speak more about that around for coffee, that'd be good wouldn't it for those of us that drink coffee if you're wanting prayer at all for anything, anything at all then Denton Loretta will be up here for the next 10 minutes or so so please come up and they would be very happy to pray with you for the rest of us don't forget next Sunday bring your picnic gear, it's off to the parker